Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Chat, Pontifax Bree Jensen on The Papacy. It's great to be back doing the podcast again. As you know, I like to start each season of the other half with a brief background episode to set the stage for the women that we'll be covering over the next few weeks and months. Now, this was a bit of a daunting prospect for this season, what with the 2,000-year history of the papacy. So, instead of doing the work myself, I decided to bring in a special guest who could do it for me. Pontifact, hosted by Bree Jensen and Fry Kajetti, is one of my absolute favourite history podcasts. An intelligent, lucid and entertaining romp through papal history. I invited one of their number, Bree, to talk posts with me on this episode and I am delighted to say that she accepted. I also have a bit of a confession. I had a slight technical mishap partway through this episode, where my lovely podcasting microphone, through which I'm speaking right now, decided to switch off without warning. This means that about half the show was recorded, unbeknownst to me, through my laptop mic, which is, you know, not as good. Rest assured, though, that though the audio fidelity was compromised, the show itself was not affected, and I really hope you enjoy it. So, after the music, you'll hear from me and Bree. Hi, Brie. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. I am doing fantastic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Pope stuff. 
<laughs> well, I'm really excited to do this as well because I've been looking forward to doing this series for a very long time, but it's really intimidating to <laughs> tackling a topic like the papacy because there's 2,000 years of history and they're all super old and weird. But to yes. start off with, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and about your podcast for my listeners who may not be familiar? Okay, I am Bree, and I am what we call the history half over at Pontifax. And Pontifax is a papal history podcast, and we are ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. So in every episode, <clears throat> sorry. So in every episode, we are going through the lives of a single pope, and we contextualize their life within the wild, the wider world of history. And then we rate them based on judging their impact on religion and the papacy, their impact on the temporal and secular world around them, how much scandal and bad behavior they got up to, as well as some silly things like what their face looked like. And then in the end, we decide which popes are the most noteworthy, and those popes are awarded a special papal bull, which way on in the future, when we get to covering all of them, we will pit all of the papal bull winners against one another and determine once and for all who's the popiest pope who ever poped. I've got this image in my head of this big battle royale, like in the WWE of all these like old blokes like wailing on each other. That's exactly what's going to happen. And we're waiting to see if St. Peter will hold on to his keys or not. So... That should be fun. Well, he's a fisherman. I bet he's quite strong. <laughs> yeah, but he also likes to run and hide a lot and deny that he has any involvement in anything because that's how Peter rolls. So that's true. He's a bit of a coward, wasn't he? So, um, <laughs> so, so, so how what 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 made you interested in doing this? What's it about popes that made you want to start a podcast? Okay, so my degree is in the Italian Renaissance. I spent my life studying Florence and the Medici family right at the heart of the Renaissance. And of course, this is the period where the papacy shines at its greatest and brightest and most important and definitely also most scandalous. Nothing in this era happens without some interaction or involvement of the Pope. And I was always really fascinated with that because you have this one of the oldest institutions in the world, like you say, 2000 years and ongoing of history. And it has a very real hand in shaping almost every era of history, at least in one way or another. And so I felt like that deserved more looking into. And since most material covering popes comes from like a very religious perspective, I wanted to focus on the historical impact that the Pope had. You said something in your introduction to the series, and you said, Popes have declared war on empires and brought kings and emperors to their knees. And, and that's exactly it. Looking at that perspective is so wild and fascinating because, well, that's not where they started, and that's certainly not where they are today, and yet they are still so, so important. So yeah, some, as many of my listeners may know, my background is in medieval history, largely sort of from the 11th century onwards. And so my knowledge of history is really all bound up in kind of the golden age of papal power. 
you know, <laughs> post sort of Gregory the Great up to sort of the um, the Reformation, where they were sort of at the height, kind of at the height of their powers, and then Charles V sacked Rome and it all sort of went to hell. Sure did. So <laughs> I'm really only familiar with powerful popes, you know, people, you know the popes that, as I say, can can make a holy Roman emperor crawl to his knees up a mountain. At yes. Canossa, I think that was. Um, and so it, listening to the podcast and, and hearing the early history, you know, of popes that have to establish that authority, of popes that, you know, aren't the dominant figure even in their own area of Rome necessarily mm-hmm. uh, is really interesting. So that sort of brings me on to my next question, which is very broadly, what is a pope? Well, and that is a question for that is that is uh, so that really is a question that depends on where and when we're talking about because in all technical terms, when we're talking about a pope, we're talking about the bishop of Rome, who now is considered the head of the entire Catholic Church by virtue of something called apostolic succession i.e. they are the successors of St. Peter, since Jesus said of Peter, upon this rock I shall build my church. But initially, Pope itself can and was used for any of the major bishops in any area, especially the patriarchates, which were the five big bishops of the time, and is still used in some circles for the Patriarch of Alexander. Uh, the Patriarch of Alexandria, who's called the Coptic Pope today. So what is a Pope is something that is very loose in terms of overall understanding. But we want to use Pope in terms of the Bishop of Rome, the guy who thinks he's in charge, the guy who has argued that he's in charge forever, whether or not he actually was. Yeah, so I think it's like... Pretty much my favorite line from Game, I think it was from Game of Thrones, and it was saying, you know, who is, like, where does power reside? And basically, it's power resides where people decide it resides. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are probably lots of parallel universes in which the Pope is, there is no Pope, or the Pope is, the, is in, well, Constantinople, or is someone else entirely. And <laughs> I just find it, you know, it, there's no reason why. Rome should be where the papacy was. You know, there's uh, arguable uh, that, you know, Peter ever went there. Jesus certainly never went there. Uh, <laughs> and yet that's where they decided to be based because of, well, that was the centre of the Roman Empire. But I find it fascinating that that's not where, you know, the Pope isn't based in Jerusalem. They think that'd be where they where they they set up shop. And there have been arguments on this this timeline made exactly for that reason. Basically, there are lots of people who would argue that at times the Pope was in Constantinople because they would argue that the papacy should have followed the power of the emperor rather than this, this idea that Peter went only to Rome because there's, again, a lot of arguments against that. So it is in a way a lot of sheer luck that we associate Rome with the papacy and with Peter and Peter as the Bishop of Rome, because all of those things can be called into question very easily. So that sort of brings me neatly on to the question of, so how did the papacy emerge and how did it change over the first sort of few centuries from St. Peter 
up, you know, into really where I think the podcast starts was in about the kind of the 800s. So the papacy emerges quite literally with St. Peter as the first bishop of Rome. And how they change is a really important question because they've changed so much. So initially, they are quite literally nothing more than problematic cult leaders who are causing disruption within the Roman Empire, which meant that they were by and large just straight up martyred, executed on the spot for being who they were. They were illegal cultists with no protection, leading a flock of problematic religious rebels. This is where the church started. It did not start from a place of power. It did not start from a place of recognition. These are basically men who are in charge of a small group, literally living in cemeteries to hide from being beheaded. And it's not until we have the conversion of Emperor Constantine and the Edict of Milan in 313, when Christianity was made legal and tolerated, that allows this these bishops of Rome, in effect, to come out of hiding, which of course increases the rate of conversion, and allowed the popes and Christians as a whole to begin to have influence and some sort of valid role within society, because at this point they were quite literally in hiding. But have an influence they did pretty quickly, because in 380, with the Edict of Thessalonica, Christianity becomes the official state religion. So they've gone from problematic cult people to being at least allowed to be alive to being the state religion sponsored by the emperor, and now everyone must be Christian. And again, here we see the Pope's role changing because this is where they start to really begin to assert this idea that they are the prime authority on matters of religion. And this doesn't initially go very well for them, considering that the Roman emperor is now in the east in Constantinople, thanks Constantine, and often becomes more favorable to the influence of the patriarch of Constantinople. And given that the east and west come into conflict over several Christological issues, which are arguments about the nature of Christ, whether he is human or divine, and this has many forms. They will argue about things called monophysitism and monophyletism and so on and so on. And this leads to challenge and schism and a few attempted assassinations of popes and a few popes that are successfully arrested, exiled, and killed. Because even though they are arguing, hey, I'm the one that created this conversion of the empire and I'm the one causing all of this Christianity to be spread, they're far enough removed from power that that no longer matters as much. And we we see that they're, they're having this, this role of influence, but the emperor still possesses the power of confirmation over the popes. So we're nowhere near any sort of power as we would think of the papacy in the, the early middle or the high middle ages and the Renaissance. The popes then eventually break away from the influence of the Roman emperor, mainly because the emperor has his hands far too full with dealing with an empire to have any concern with what's going on in Italy. And new alliances with the emerging Franks 
start to give the popes a little bit more of a grounding because now under the Franks, the popes start having territory of their own to be in charge of. And with that, their their confidence and their influence starts to grow and they start pushing back a lot more. And this is not a, a conversion that happens overnight, of course, because for a long time, they are still beholden to confirmation under the Frankish Empire now instead of the Roman Empire. But it's this slow process of waiting for empires to fracture and then filling that vacuum of power with religious authority now that they have territory that we actually start to see power developing and and a platform in which to say, I am the chief authority and you must listen to me. So I guess, yeah, so going up to the 800s is when you start to see a new quote-unquote holy, quote-unquote Roman, quote-unquote <laughs> empire form. Uh, yeah. I guess, well, I think it was it was a proper empire in the 800s. Um, I think it's we're a little bit off uh, what Napoleon encountered and destroyed. How? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So I guess the, the papacy, when it had to suddenly deal with Charlemagne and and all his successors um, was in a much more powerful position than than dealing with the emperor in Rome and then the emperor in Constantinople. So, how powerful was a pope in in the, in this sort of period in the eight hundreds, Middle Ages, going into the Renaissance? That was heavily dependent on what their relationship was with the emperor as well. Because it, it in that sense, it doesn't change as much, except for the fact that in this case with the Frankish emperors, with Charlemagne, with Pepin, these they start to actually bestow land and influence on the Pope, which creates a sort of problem for them because then it becomes a challenge to them. So it kind of depends on their relationship because Charlemagne and his his favorite Pope, Adrian, had an excellent relationship. And that really, really did quite a lot to enhance the power of the papacy because they now have a papal states. They now have a, a Christian king who feels compelled to protect the papacy and therefore is somewhat obedient to the papacy. Now, this is, of course, a very broad swaths here because Charlemagne very much also thought himself a ministerial king and thought he should have full control and full authority over spiritual matters in his own domain. And we see problems arise from that later. So it is a question of how powerful were they? Were they on good terms with the emperor? Good. Then they had a lot of backing and they could push a lot harder. If things weren't great with the Holy Roman emperors, they started to fracture and be a little bit more withdrawn, not pushing that power as much because they could still be attacked and they still needed to be defended. So we've talked a lot so far about uh, emperors and their relationship with the Pope, be it the emperor in Rome, Constantinople, or in um in Germany or in France, but obviously the popes had to deal also with Italian princes and Italian dukes. How, what was that relationship like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very tumultuous, to say the least. Actually, a lot of those 
those princes were who the popes needed defense against in many cases because they were they were not always very the popes of Italy were, had no interest in being a united Italy by any stretch of the imagination and often these were princes who came out of the lombard descent so they already have quite a history of contention with the papacy as a whole the lombards were very problematic for the popes. And what we see is as a result of their own interests, what happens a lot is the Italian princes start to invite other forces in as mercenary forces to defend themselves. And a lot of times those forces are Islamic Saracens. So not only is this presenting a problem for the papacy by just having an unstable Italy all around them, they now have a threat to their actual religious power because this is a new competitive religion coming into their territory and doing remarkably well at taking over territory. So the relationship with the princes is fractious at best, but then you have this complete undertone to it, which becomes very dangerous. And this is why we see the Pope clinging so hard to the Franks as a way to protect themselves from these princes who who really don't care. So let's move on a little bit to about the, these people, about these people who are popes. So again, so we're going to focus here really on the period that this series is going to be covering. So let's say the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. How were popes chosen? Well, and this is this is a time period in which this changes because up until this point, the pope was generally chosen by and I'm using this in air quotes, the Roman Curia as a whole, but not really the Roman Curia because it's always generally the interference of the nobles who are choosing a pope that represents their own political influences. Or we have emperors, both Roman and Frankish, who are absolutely going out of their way to ensure a pope on the throne that benefits what they want. And sometimes we see in the case of rival claimants or anti-popes, sometimes at this point it boiled down to who had the greater mob support or who got to the Lateran first and was able to defend the building. At the time of the High Middle Ages, due to some very contentious elections, if you will, we now have the establishment of the College of Cardinals and the idea of conclave, where voting now occurs with the cardinals. They are the electoral body, and the cardinals are basically the priests who represent the the tituli or the main churches of Rome. That's where cardinals come from. And they are locked into a room and they are supposed to vote in secret for a two-thirds majority for the Pope. It's never that cut and dry and it is certainly never a full and fair election, but we at least have a structured format that we see actually happening so that there's some, some sort of uniformity. 
And so what were these cardinals looking for from a pope? You know, what made them look amongst their number or look amongst, because back then you didn't have to be a cardinal to uh, to become a pope, to look at uh, saying, that's my man. Uh, generally someone who was related to them at this time in period. This is, this is where we actually get the term nepotism. It's from the Italian word nipote, because generally we, you want to vote for your uncle because he's going to give you the best influence and set you up to be Pope in the future. And if you're not related to anyone in the conclave, which at this point is relatively unlikely, you're going to want somebody who represents strong re- strong alliances to your family. So at this point, pretty much all of the cardinals that we're looking at are coming from nobility, and they're coming from either well-established noble families or newly established royal or noble families or merchant families who are looking to make an incredible influence. So you want to vote for someone mostly based on what is going to be best for you and your family as a whole. And if you happen to have very strong political ties to one of the courts of Europe at this point, they would often have cardinals who would vote specifically on their behalf as well. But I would say that the personal ambition was a much stronger motivator for most of the cardinals. And so I think you've already mentioned that sort of most of the cardinals were of a, a noble class. Does that mean that most of the popes were also of a noble class? At this time, generally, they were either of one of the noble families. One of the this this is why you see so many popes of the, especially the Renaissance period having the same familiar, recognizable last names because they generally were of these very important and prominent Italian families. And that is also very important Italian families, because after the papacy had gone to Avignon and come back, they were not prepared to let it go. So you've mentioned a couple of times Avignon and schisms and antipopes. For my listeners who maybe know aren't familiar with these things, do you want to quickly run through what those mean? So a schism is when the church breaks on an issue. Generally, it's a theological issue. So monophysitism was about the divinity or the humanity of Christ, whether he was one, the other, or both. And so when people would disagree on this issue, we have a schism. And so in a schism, you have what the church believes, what Rome believes is considered the orthodox perspective, and anything else generally tends to fall into heresy. So until those two pieces, these two groups come back together, we have a schism. An anti-pope is generally a rival claimant to the papal throne. And sometimes it's not clear who the anti-pope is until someone wins, because then the other person is considered the anti-pope. And during this period, we have a whole series of anti-popes because of something called the Western Schism. And this is when the papacy leaves Rome and goes to Avignon and sets itself up there. And this becomes heavily contentious. And there are, um, this completely divides the Catholic church. And there are people who will not support the Pope in Avignon. So they want to elect their own Pope. And we get to a point where it's very confusing over who the legitimate Pope is because that idea of legitimacy and, and, 
proper elections goes out the window because if you're in Avignon, it's invalid. Or if you're in Rome, it's invalid. And it becomes very complicated. And it's only really at the beginning of this period we could call the High Middle Ages and the Renaissance that a pope decides to leave Avignon, return to Rome, and bring everyone back into accord where they basically just, at that point, there are three antipopes and they have everyone abdicate. They have a brand new election and start over with Pope Martin V. Yeah, I have a bit of a, a bit of soft spot for antipopes because my university, St. Andrews, <laughs> was founded by an antipope, Benedict the Thirteenth. So oh ever... wow! <laughs> I love that. We had a three-year we had a three-year anniversary, a three-year six hundredth anniversary, because you have to do with when the papal bull was done, when the antipope declared it, and then when the real pope <laughs> declared it. This is like in fourteen thirteen to fifteen is in the Western Schism. So yes, I've always always had a soft spot for them. And oftentimes they have just as legitimate uh, of a claim as the Pope who ends up winning. And like I said, it, it often comes down to where the larger support is and who has the Lateran at that time. We are also covering all of the anti-Popes and they have some very, very phenomenal stories. Yeah, I think at the time this guy only had the support of Scotland, which is why... <laughs> Which is because uh, it was very con- basically at this time, if England supported one pope, the Scots would support the other one. It's pretty much can pretty much guarantee that'll be the case. Oh, definitely, and and that is also interestingly enough, that is where anti popes really explode because in the early church, despite being a less formalized process, they didn't contest nearly as often it's when popes really take on this very political very temporal role that we start to see things like scotland supporting one pope just because england is supporting another or the french and the italian arguing about popes based on where they're from it really is the golden era of anti-popes too i've no idea why anyone wanted to be a pope up until i know about 500 because it just sounds like the worst job you're either going to get crucified or you're going to spend all your time in a byzantine jail it seems like yeah i would i would even argue later i would pretty much only want to be a pope in the renaissance because that's when you could have some fun with it but before that you you are either going to get martyred and then you go from martyring to having to defend your land all the time because of all of these saracen invasions and then you have to deal with all the holy roman emperors yeah i would be a leo the 10th that's the only time i want to be pope so today the pope is not just the leader of the catholic church he's also the autocrat of a very small city-state in italy Yes, but the popes used to have an awful lot more land. Um, so, again, I have to generalize over a long period, but looking at the Middle Ages, how much land did they directly control? Generally speaking, by the time of what we call the donation of Pepin and the establishment of the papal states, they were. We actually had a map. And we covered it on one episode and we referred to it as just the purple chunks. But it is about two thirds of Italy was under at least some form of control by the papal state. So it is a very substantial chunk. And that didn't change for quite a long time. The papal states were existed in some capacity until the 19th century. So they had quite a bit of land for quite a bit of time. 
Yeah, until they came up against the Italian uh, wars of... No, what they called it? The Wars of Unification. That's the one. Then it's until <laughs> they came up against the Italian Wars of Unification and Garibaldi and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Stuff that was only then solved by Mussolini. Yes, yes, exactly. So it's not really solved until about the 1920s. Um, yes. So obviously the Pope is both... Has this weird dual role of being a leader of a religion, but also a monarch, essentially. And obviously monarchs have courts, they have people around them. So what? what who were the people that were sort of surrounding him? What was the papal court like? Well, the papal court was the hub in which all kingdoms passed through. It was like the heart of a major city center. This is where you wanted to come for political alliances, for favors, for advancement, to make any sort of deal or seek any type of advantage. It was as ruthless and cutthroat as any court of a king with this additional majesty, if you will, of the blessing of God. And yet, let's not forget, they were also as scandalous, indulgent, and salacious as any king's court. So it's it's sort of your buffet, if you will. If you want to get representatives from any nation that you're looking to make an alliance for, there's going to be someone at the Vatican. If you want to make a trade deal with a nation you don't have any contact with, go to the Vatican. If you want to be made the prince of some newly formed territory, go to the Vatican. Everybody at this point is there or represented there. And if they weren't, they wanted to be because this is where the wheeling and dealing is really happening. But I guess one of the major differences between, I'd say, the papal court and most other royal courts is that most kings had wives and the idea one of the main jobs of a queen in the middle ages was to run the courts to be sort of in charge of organizing everything the entertainments you know be the kind of the the mistress of the household how was a papal court run without a without a wife Well, it depends on if we need to talk about wives only by the legal standard. At this time, of course, we're dealing with popes like Alexander Sixtus Rodrigo Borgia or Pope Leo X. This this is, there are absolutely women at the court who are doing this job. They just have different titles. And sometimes it's just very openly acknowledged mistress. And in many cases, which I know you're going to cover because they are some of the most fascinating women of the papal court it's papal daughters and they play a very interesting and very important role at court so you do have a lot of present women and i mean we could go even further back and i know you're going to talk about marozia and and theodora so there are women who are taking a very active role in running the court they're just not the official wives because yeah, you can't do that when you're Pope, but that still didn't stop them by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, I think we're, we're drifting dangerously into spoiler country here, so I'm just going <laughs> to wrestle you back. Yes. And um, just talk, you know, who, I think everyone's going to want me to ask you this. Who's your favorite Pope that you've certainly, well, certainly that you've covered so far, that you've looked into in depth? Oh, okay. So we have a very soft spot for a pope called Pope Honorius I. And he is relatively unknown by the standards of when we talk about big and notable popes, but he really should be because he has the unfortunate honor 
of being posthumously declared a heretic and excommunicated by the church. All of that said, he was an absolutely excellent pope. He was securing orthodoxy on the home front and encouraging the spread of Christianity and and evangelization across Europe. He was restoring much of the city of Rome, including aqueducts that brought clean and safe water into the city of Rome for the first time in a long time. But unfortunately, because of a letter where he casually and vaguely sort of agreed to see someone's point about something that will become a major heretical argument in the future, he becomes excommunicated and condemned 40 years after his death. And we believe that that was incredibly unwarranted because he was actually a very good pope. So when was he when was he around? So he was Pope in the 7th century. So from about the 630s or the 620s, 630s sort of era. So he's right, right before we start to get into one of these major Christological arguments, which is called monothelitism, which is where they start talking about whether Jesus had a divine will or a human will. And someone wrote to him and said, well, can't you see how this makes sense that he would have only a divine will? And Honorius went, well, I can see your point. And it's not even that he's fully agreeing with this man, but he gets condemned as a result of that. Well, I can see your point as someone who polluted the papacy and tainted Orthodox Christianity and is a befouled heretic to be anathematized for all time. And is he still excommunicated? Oh, yes. Oh dear. Oh yes, that's oh, never man. been undone. <laughs> he's um he's one of the the popes from that period, one of the only popes from that period who's not a saint, obviously, because of that. So he he definitely sticks out like a sore thumb, but it's it's very unfortunate because really excellent pope. And so I mean, other than I'm imagining the Borgia popes and uh, the popes around the Medici period. Who are you most looking forward to covering? Oh, well, my other favorite pope, aside from the Medici popes, is Pope Sylvester II, who, very similarly to Honorius, I'm, I'm going to expose myself as having a pattern here, he was the most learned, most educated pope that ever came to the papacy in the Middle Ages. And as a result of being such an educated man, his ongoing reputation is him as someone who makes deals with the devil and is a black sorcerer and a necromancer, and his bones shake foretelling the death of all future popes and all sorts of really, really like dark magic mythology around him because he embraced education, because he embraced knowledge from the East. And it's all very like poorly, poor reputation, but actually excellent Pope in the process. So I'm very much looking forward to him. So you like your Popes that were really clever and, you know, decent people, but, you know, (laughs) that wasn't, that wasn't the favorite thing. I, I love an underdog. I really do. I, I think it's, it, you know, there are, like you said, the, the Borgia Popes, the Medici Popes, and of course there is the Cadaver Synod. So there are these moments in papal history that everybody knows about, and they're very exciting. But there are there's so many little nuggets of drama everywhere else, and I can't wait to bring those ones to life. 
So you've already told some some great stories of things that went on, but obviously there's an awful lot of crazy stuff going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have just to finish off um, in a couple of like fun anecdotes, any crazy goings on that you'd like to really, if anyone you know really wants to look into the paper, see more, this is what they should be looking out for. Well, definitely. I think one of the most fun popes that we've covered so far is Pope Damasus. And he's quite famous for a lot of good things because he's actually the Pope who determined which books of the Bible were canon. So he he plays a very prominent role. But in overcoming another claimant to the papacy, there was an anti-Pope who came against him. He just instigates a massacre of about 137 people who supported his rival, just like straight up has them murdered. He starts hiring gladiators to be bodyguards. And he was also a notorious ladies' man, and he earned the nickname the ladies' ear tickler. So this is a complex figure. And I think that that's a really great one for people to look at. Or there's Pope Vigilius, who was responsible for the arrest, exile, and death of his predecessor, Pope Silverius. Then he became the most flaky pope in history, kind of making decisions and then undoing them and then making them and undoing them and making everybody angry in the process, resulting in him being literally dragged out of a church by his beard by the emperor's henchmen. So that's always a fun story. And if you're looking for something upcoming on our podcast, like I mentioned before, we're coming very close to the Cadaver Synod, where a pope desperate to legitimize himself, decides to dig up the body of his predecessor and put the corpse on trial for heresy. Which is, in fact, a full-blown trial of a corpse with a poor, poor cleric who must stand behind the corpse and voice the corpse, because obviously it can't do it for itself, ends up condemning the corpse as a heretic and throwing it in the Tiber River. Wonderful. Love that. <laughs> yeah, that, and that and that's unfortunately one of those stories that when it happens, everyone stops and there's a lot of shock and awe, but then it affects the next about 150 years of the papacy where every single pope who comes, who assumes the throne and is consecrated as pope, one of their first things must be a declaration about how they feel about the cadaver synod for a long time. So this is this is a very lasting moment in papal history. I, I've always been fascinated by the the rulers that come to power way too young and it goes wildly to their heads. So I've always I've mentioned it in the first episode. I've been fascinated by Pope John the Twelfth. Mm-hmm. So he's tenth century came to power. I think anyway he's about twenty five. Yes. And basically ran, I think I said in the episode, he ran like the Pope's like frat house. Oh, very much so. And There's a reason that era is called the pornocracy. Oh, well, <laughs> I look forward to hearing more about that. But I think he may, he may come up in, in the next episode uh, a little bit because he's linked to the Pope Joan legend. So look forward to that. Yes, yes, he is. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brie. It's been a great, great to have you on the show. And as I said... I always like to have experts on people who know more than me and uh, and you definitely do on this topic. Where can people find your podcast? Give us all give us all your links and socials. 
So you can find us at pontifax.podbean.com for the podcast. And we are at Pontifax Pod on every one of your social medias. Come check us out. We've got a lot of bizarre things going on. Fantastic. So thanks again for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight to talk about popes. Thanks again, Brie. That was absolutely brilliant. Please do check out Pontifax wherever you get your podcasts, and then join me next time for the first episode proper of this season, where we will be covering the enigma that is Pope Joan. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.